Hey everyone, I'm Ian Skura. I'm Mary Scott. And I'm Peter Lawrence. And this is Questioning Quidditch. What started out as my own personal journey to learn about the Quidditch community has evolved into a broader effort to hear from voices and create thought-provoking questions to examine the sport that we love. Our goal this season is to interview athletes from various regions and with different backgrounds to talk about their personal experiences with Quidditch, both on and off the pitch. We hope through these conversations that we are able to build bridges between various Quidditch communities to understand what Quidditch means for folks across the Quidditch community at large. And we hope you'll join us along the way as we meet new people and also interview some close friends as well. Today, our guests are Aaron Moreno and Kobe Kendall. Aaron played college Quidditch for Ball State, helping the team make a Final Four appearance during U.S. Quidditch Cup 9. She has also played for the L.A. Gambits and Long Beach Funky Quaffles in USQ and the Indianapolis Intensity in MLQ, making the finals against the Austin Outlaws in 2017. Kobe Kendall has played most of his Quidditch career for UC Irvine, having also played a season of MLQ for the L.A. Guardians and also played for the U.S. National Team Development Academy, where I had the chance to actually play alongside Kobe. And here's the interview. So how did each of you get started playing Quidditch? <laughs> um, I heard about Quidditch when I was around like 10th grade-ish. Um, and so then uh, when I was touring colleges, um, I saw UCI. I heard that they had a Quidditch team. And um, I didn't choose UCI because they had a Quidditch team, but that was definitely a, a part that I really liked about it. Um, I ended up finding the team and started playing. Um, so I actually, I technically transferred when I went to Ball State. I had literally taken one college credit at a community college actually out here in about like an hour inland from where I am right now in California. And so I went in as a transfer student, which is like a very different orientation process than what freshmen get. And they basically sat us in a room and they handed out these pamphlets and then like three college students came in and talked about the perks of joining a club. And my dad actually was like leafing through the little pamphlet that they handed us. And he like circled one and like handed it to me. And it was the Ball State Quidditch Club. And he was like, you have to go to a practice for this and tell me what it's like. <laughs> so I actually went because my dad told me to. <laughs> and then I literally, I think like the first practice, like I was pretty much hooked at it. Like it was, yeah, I was done. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I guess, so you, you sort of touched on that, but what made each of you stick with Quidditch then over the years now? It was beating for sure. I, I've never played anything other than beater, um, other than seeker. Um, at my first practice, cap, the captains kind of just like placed me at, at uh, the beater position. Um, and there's another kid um, who had like dodgeball background. We were pretty similar. Um, and like, we were literally just playing, like we were off in our playing beater world the whole time. Um, 
And so I, I really like the fast-paced uh, position, and so that that's really what kept me. I, I really loved playing beater. And what about you? What what made you stick with Quidditch? <laughs> uh, well, I stuck with Quidditch probably a significantly longer period of time, so my answer is definitely going to be a little bit longer. <laughs> Very fair. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I actually um, I knew I wanted to join some kind of a sport when I went into college because, like Kobe, I've got a fairly athletic background. Um, I was a competitive swimmer for 11 years. Um, so I've like always just like done something and I just like know myself as a person and I'm like, all right, if I don't have like an outlet for physical activity, I'm going to go crazy. So I went to the Quidditch practice that my dad kind of made me go to. (laughs) And when I was there, kind of like Kobe and like probably like many people, you know, you have your first like introductory session where they just kind of like let you run wild, like teach you what the sport is, what the positions do. Um, I remember I played every single position except for keeper. Um, Ball State at that time when I joined was mostly populated, not by the thin lanky people that I think most people know them as, but (laughs) by very, very stocky six, like four, like senior men. Um, So I was like, I don't have any interest in touching them at all. Um, so I started with like seeking and all this stuff and I like was just like going for it. And I was like, you know what? This is not really the vibe for me. Um, I started playing beater because when I first started playing the sport, we were a few years, thankfully removed from capes, but the beater game, had <laughs> <laughs> the beater game had not yet really um, come into its own in the way that it has right now. So at the time, you know, it was kind of like, all right, I'm fairly athletic. And like a lot of the people who play beater are people who are not athletic and who are told to just stand at the hoops. (laughs) So I knew as I joined the team that was mostly populated with seniors that I could just kind of like play a lot more. So that's kind of how I stuck with beater. And then like ultimately, like it definitely was like the love of the game that kept me playing for so long, especially. Um, Quidditch is like, just like a really unique sport. There's like so much to it. And especially when you play at beater, there's so much strategy that just goes into it. Um, Anybody who plays beater like knows exactly like what we're talking about. Um, You know, there's like chasers, keepers, you guys do a great job. But like, (laughs) there's like not a ton of strategy beyond like, until I guess you get to like the hoop line, then it's like, all right, cool. Like, what do we do from here? Hey, I'm being personally attacked. (laughs) Yeah, you're talking to like three primary chasers. Hey, I've started quote unquote beating. I'm not good, but I enjoy it. That's why I said primarily. Okay, I acknowledge (laughs) that you do it occasionally. On the all campus draft, they, uh, the analysts, they dinged me for not putting you as utility. <laughs> Jeez, Kobe, you're not going to put me in as a beater against the best beaters in the country? Come on. Yeah, it definitely made Ian play beater an entire USQ game. That was incredible. <laughs> he killed it. Did you like getting into that? It was fun. I, I feel like the more I try and play it, the honestly, the better I get at understanding the game. I've been like reaching out to the potential, I mean, I guess right now it's so up in the air, but the potential club teams I was going to play for in in the area, and I was like, 
can I practice with the beaters? Because I think this is helping me get better at all <laughs> aspects of the game. Um, so yeah, I would honestly, love to keep I've learning. I, I've heard that from a lot of chasers who like just do a little bit of beating. They get into it just a little bit. Um, and they start to just understand the, the type of thinking that beaters have. And, it, and it, I feel like it makes their play style so much more, so much more well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know everyone talks about him, but like, I think there's a reason that Augie plays almost every position and enjoys <laughs> like switching all the time because I'm sure it helps him understand the game way better than he would if he just played one. Mm -hmm. We had two beater or, um, keepers on our team. I accidentally said beater because one of them would try to sneak over to the beater side of the practice during our practices and then he would like get like punished by going back to where he actually plays um nick kaufman who was also drafted for <laughs> campus cup he literally finally i somebody literally like snapchatted me and they're just like they finally let nick play beater <laughs> and like, no game for like ball state and apparently he balled out i think that's something that you see especially in like the club scene um like that's where a lot of the players have had a chance to kind of like flip from one position to the next and stuff like that. Like, um, I don't know if it's a super common thing outside the like Northeast or like mid Atlantic, but like Lindsay Morello like started as a beater and like ended up just balling out as a chaser. Like there's so many players who have like tried one thing for like an extended period of time. I think Jules also, right. I was listening to your podcast and she also started as like a beater for a hot sec. She did. Yeah. There's, <laughs> There's so many players that like just have this experience on one side of like the strategy of like the game as a whole, and then they decide to just like you know go for it from the other side, and they're able to take their experience from like how they know how to play, what they know, what they want in that position as a player, and then take it with them to like kind of inform their strategy, inform their playmaking, and the other role. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Peter, what were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say that like playing against Ian as a beater in practice is terrifying. I have like never seen a human being more willing to like just throw a bludger across a pitch. And then like, I would say like a good 66% of the time, just like drill you in the back of the head, like a consistent 66. And if he misses, you feel the ball pass you. And then he's just like, he beats like he chases. Which is like, yep. it's just like him like prancing around on a Quidditch <laughs> pitch, and it's like okay. Uh, I I will try and stop making this about me and for a quick second. Uh, Sorry, or, or in a quick second, but I just want to quickly say in the one of the very few games I played beater at, like against another team in the Northeast. I think we were playing BU. Um, I took everyone by surprise because. They tried to run a 1.5, and instead of, like, any normal beater tactic, I just juked like I was a chaser and just, like, dodged yeah. by people until I got to the quaffle carrier and hit them with a butcher. You had, like, like, some <laughs> incredible split dodges. It was insane. I was like, oh, this is probably not how I'm normally supposed to play this position. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time it doesn't work out. It was just, yeah. yeah. Anyways, we anyway to move on. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a good transition as a good transition from from Ian's beater weird play styles. Are there any like specific beater pairs or play styles or chemistry that just like clicked for you two when you were with folks? Just like ways you'd like to play or ways you like partners to play? Yeah, so 
very interesting question. <laughs> um, especially because like, honestly, as a female athlete, I typically had very little say in what our play style was. Um, there were like, I am probably not the first person to feel this way. And I probably will not be the last, but like, I don't know if the way that I play is necessarily the best way for like me as an athlete to play the sport because everything I learned from playing the sport was basically kind of like, you know, for a while I was in the stereotypical kind of like cleanup role for my first partner. He was a very, very great person, but very aggressive beater. Um, just kind of like his gameplay was just like run all over the pitch, throw it as hard as you can. By that point, if he had missed, he had tired himself out, which meant that it was time for me to go get his ball for him. <laughs> um, yeah. Thankfully, I was able to transition out of that. Um, through my time at Ball State, like I played with a lot of like really experienced and talented um, male beaters. Um, obviously, Tyler Walker, Matt Brown. I think Matt was actually probably my favorite partner to play with because he had a very intelligent way of playing and he did a good job of adapting to the things that made it easier for me to play with him so he is like a very like high level of play beater but the way that he plays he plays very intelligently so that like he's very like work smarter, not harder, which made my job a lot easier as somebody who has like kind of become really good at positioning myself. Like that ultimately became like the thing that I was best at in Quidditch, which is like, I'm going a mistake. I can capitalize on the mistake. And that takes away, like, I don't have to be bigger, stronger or faster. Um, although being faster definitely helps. <laughs> um, so that was definitely like, I think that was probably the best dynamic that I was ever kind of able to work with was just like, he would also put himself in really good positions, which made it really like kind of easy. You know, if he's placing himself like on the right side of somebody, there only is really like one or two areas for me to go. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also easy because he didn't miss a ton. So like, <laughs> I was able to then kind of like actively like run around, be more of a like aggressive free beater um when i didn't have a ball um yeah i don't have a ton of experience playing out west because i've been a little um <laughs> here and there with my playing um i will say though honestly i think the best partner that i had out west was when i actually played at anthill which was um aq's tournament mm -hmm. and we actually didn't have a fair amount of our veteran players there, like the big names at Gambits at the time. So Tony, Steve, and Kevin Horn were all like gone from that roster. Okay. Um, and myself and Alyssa Burton actually went in together and she plays very similarly to me, probably because she has a very similar story of playing as I do. Yeah. But because we were both just like so able to adapt to somebody else's play style, like it just made us work really like fluidly together. Um, and so that was like another play, like that was another person that I felt like I was just like, like I knew what to do. I always felt like she was able gonna, like it was gonna be able to adapt to what I wanted to do and things like that. Like it was really like good, like back and forth in that chemistry. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> Mary, where do you think we want to jump from here? Should we just do the 
specific question for Kobe. Yeah, yeah, true. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, so you're both a seeker and a beater. So um, how do you balance like wanting to seek when that's an opportunity, but also like do snitch on pitch beating, which I'm not a beater, but I know that's very important. <laughs> <laughs> how do you still, like, balance those two? I remember this was, um, yeah, more more of a bigger deal my first year, more beating better just for myself. Um, I loved both positions. Um, at the time, I also liked snitching too. Um, so I liked doing all three. Um, at the time, yeah, I was definitely our, our UCI's first string seeker. Um, and also it was my first year playing. Um, so I never really got a choice in, in the matter. Um, so yeah, I, I pretty much had to seek every time. Um, though in the last, like, uh, in during my second and third years, I started like being more involved with leadership. Um, that definitely started coming up, and I got to kind of choose the situations that I got to seek in. Um, as I've gotten, as I've played Quidditch more, um, I've definitely come to like beating a lot more. <laughs> I love snitch on pitch beating, especially. Um, and I, I didn't get to play snitch on pitch beating like too much during my first year. So especially during like the last two years, I, I absolutely love snitch on pitch beating. Um, and luckily we have, uh, we got Daniel Belton, um, who is an absolutely phenomenal seeker. Um, so, so I didn't have to do too much seeking the last two years. However, um, Daniel and I honestly were really good together on a team, um, uh, because the snitches that he was weak against i'm actually pretty strong against um so the few the few snitches that that he wasn't wasn't as apt at catching um i would recognize that and, and put myself in as seeker um and most of the time it, it worked out pretty well um but yeah honestly i i would if i if it was completely my choice i would rather just beat during snitch on pitch yeah, so like what goes into your decision to take yourself out of the beating game versus like and put yourself into mm. the seeking game? Um, biggest thing, I mean, probably the score um, and where we are against um, the other team. <clears throat> mm. Great follow-up question, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was your follow-up question? No, oh. you were saying I had a great follow-up oh, question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, biggest thing is probably uh, knowing, like, knowing who the snitch is. Um, the seekers that I learned from were very smart seekers in that they taught me to really to know what the what what kind of snitch I was going to be up against. Um, and so, you know, they would tell me the moment, you know. From, from the beginning of the game, like the moment that you know who the snitch is, you already start figuring out how you're gonna catch them. Um, and so that, that's something that I've incorporated into my seeking style. And so that, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, and so deciding to take myself out of the beating game, I choose to really only do that on like if I know I can catch that 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 snitch um, because otherwise I would be more valuable on the beating game, giving my other seekers uh, more time on the snitch. But if it is a snitch that like I know that I am strong against, like that that's where I, that's when I'll put myself in um, as a seeker. Gotcha. 
Um, I'm seeing if Peter has any specific seeker questions because he's definitely uh, yeah I'm sought a lot. I, is sought the past <laughs> tense. I've never known this sought. Yeah, I guess <laughs> is it how long for you is that like how long is that time frame to figure out that snitch? Is that like first a catch attempt or like a couple of attempts on the snitch and then you can read them? Because I've like noticed snitches making moves. And then I'm like, okay, cool. You have one move you're going for to like get me away. How do I combat that? Or does it depend on the snitch? Um, I would say usually I, because uh, I, I do have like a favorite move that I that like works pretty well for, for my seeking style. And so usually when I go in at the beginning, um, you know, I'll do that a few times, kind of see where I'm at um, and then kind of reassess the situation um see if they're you know if they're doing the same thing over and over to me then it's like okay cool let me switch it up um i found that like honestly just like switching hands right at the last moment like you you can you can catch a snitch off guards really easily especially um something that one of my uh seeker mentors taught me was <laughs> um was to basically like go at the snitch kind of with the same hand you know three or four times get them used to to blocking that one side and then as soon as you're like uh getting close looking like you're gonna do the same thing again uh switch up that hand and you know your your hand is right on the tail i really like that um do, do you feel comfortable divulging who one of who that seeker mentor is <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so um the one on my team was uh he was his name was philip arroyo long <laughs> his uh he was the captain that year and he was uh one of the main seekers for for uci and then also um a seeker that i watched a lot um was alec richardson um in from from the west uh, i watched a lot of film of him seeking and kind of picked up a fair amount of my moves from from what he did gotcha. cool um yeah and then i guess just switching over back to aaron um so we're curious to ask you what it's been like i know you kind of said that you haven't played a ton out in the west but you still i feel like played a fairly significant amount and um so we were curious what it's been like transitioning regions uh, as a quidditch player and like what it's like to play in either of those regions in in the Great Lakes and West, and if there were specific differences in culture, play styles, and and things like that for you. All right, that is a that's a heavy question, Ian. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, just off the bat, there are just like such major differences to the point where like like I was just thinking about it today, and I don't really know if it's just like there's such a big difference from what I came from versus what exists out here in the West, or if the West itself is just so different than the rest of the country. Um, because, you know, <laughs> there have been the conversations about like the West falling behind in certain aspects and stuff like that, and like what the West needs to do to catch up, even if it's just in terms of like recognition or whatever it is, like, I don't think it's a secret on any front that the West is not at the same level at whatever that is as the rest of the country is. Um, so I guess coming from the Great Lakes and especially coming from the time period that I played there. So I can't really speak obviously for the last two years of anything that's happened in the Great Lakes. Like I have not been there for that. Um, but I know when I was playing in the Great Lakes, it was a very, 
I think like competitive, honestly, is just like the best word that I can put for it. It was just like a very competitive atmosphere. Um, you know, you had like a few friends here and there on different teams, but for the most part, like there wasn't a ton of kind of like inner team, like camaraderie or anything like that. Like other teams didn't really like hang out with each other. You had like your Quidditch after parties. You had your fantasy tournaments back when that was a thing. Um, <laughs> and like beyond that, like you really just kind of stuck with your own team. Um, so there wasn't like a ton of opportunity to really like, like you knew the names from other players, like usually because somebody had done something to you or your team that you didn't like. <laughs> like and like, you kind of had like a little bit of like a vendetta against them. <laughs> and so like, I know for Ball State, like it was like a kind of a joke that it was like, okay, who's our rival school going to be like this year? Like one year with CMU, like, BGSU was always one of our rivals because they were always just like at the same things as us. Like, mm -hmm. we always, like we always played them. It seemed like in the finals, like there was a year or two period where it was like, all right, are they going to win this tournament or are we going to win it? Whose turn is it? Like, <laughs> so it was like, you know, people, but it's like, you're not super like close with anybody. You don't really hang out with people unless they're on your team, that kind of thing. Um, I think that changed once MLQ really picked up. Um, so yeah, I was actually the manager for the first year of intensity for the team. Everybody likes to make fun of the name of Indianapolis intensity and I'm the one who came up with that. So thank you. <laughs> it's, so, um, I don't know. I feel like it's, yeah. it, it, it's easy to say it's pretty straightforward. I don't know. I like, yeah, it's like I don't know. You try to come up with alliteration and something cool that has to do with Indianapolis and let me know what you get. Like, <laughs> not easy. <laughs> But I think, yeah, like MLQ kind of changed that landscape, at least for intensity, because our team was at a base level drawing from Chicago and Indianapolis, um, because we didn't really have the population to support a full MLQ team from just Indiana, honestly. There were a few teams in the area, but none. Like the first year, I think we had three people outside of Ball State on the roster for intensity. Um, like it was just a ball state team. So after that, like we had like a lot of players from like, um, Illinois state university came out. And so we all kind of became closer through that. And that was really the first time I had friendships outside of my team. And I specify that because coming out West, it was like, like I felt like a jackass at times like it is friendship first and most important <laughs> like like that was a big thing out here um and I was just like like I didn't even know how to react to it honestly sometimes like I was suspicious of people honestly <laughs> like I was like like obviously now it's like okay what's wrong with me that like I didn't trust that people are just being friendly <laughs> But like, I remember um, a few days actually after I had finished my drive out West, I went to, it was West Fantasy, right? Okay, yeah. I went to West Fantasy um, and I played in a tournament. Um, I had been drafted by Steve DiCarlo and I vaguely knew him and like maybe one other person. Didn't really know anybody else. And I remember like so many people just came up to me and were like talking to me and were like excited that I was out here and like, were, like, oh my gosh, what team are you playing for? Like just so many people like offered me opinions about what, like, 
I remember Alex Richardson, I met him that day and he came up to me and was like talking to me about like playing with like the Lost Boys versus the Gambit versus Long Beach. And he played with all three and like just like offered me all this like advice about the team and like it was just like so friendly and so just like and it was just like very different than like the culture that I was used to from the Great Lakes at least at the time and then playing I felt has also been very different um so out here I played for Gambits my first year I ended up quitting a little bit after regionals um just kind of like trying to like deal with some like personal stuff and then this past year I actually played with Long Beach um mm-hmm. because I was just like I want to have fun and <laughs> like play fun Quidditch. <laughs> and I'm honestly kind of over competing at this point um and that was really great fully great team of people um but it was very very different and something that I've noticed especially kind of like traveling around a fair amount of the regions and like being privy to like Team USA like events um like I was at both the training camps for Pan Am and the 2018 World Cup Games um just because I was like helping out with like volunteer stuff and stuff like that and so it's like very interesting you get like a good sense of at least like a general sense of like what each region kind of brings to the table for Quidditch and you know for a long time it was kind of like the stereotypical like southwest brings like the physicality and the aggression and like whatever whatever and like the northeast is like the strategy and the brains and I think those lines have kind of blurred now um (laughs) Also, it's but a little like, biased when the people who are saying that the Northeast has strategy and brains are from the Northeast. <laughs> I would not disagree. <laughs> but for a long time, I remember, like, it just felt like the Great Lakes and, like, obviously at that time, the Great Lakes and Midwest used to be one thing. So it was, like, very new that they weren't one region. Um, like, it was just, like, kind of like, okay, if you're not from the Northeast and Southwest, like, what does your region bring (laughs) like um and I remember thinking that like the Great Lakes especially felt like everybody kind of took that as a challenge like a lot of the players it seemed like got really really into watching film and not just film of teams that we would see at tournaments or teams that we might play at nationals but um we used to have film session nights where we would just like watch Quidditch events and we would just like all like kind of gather and like watch like the, I don't freaking know, like <laughs> Southwest fantasy, like things that were like streamed and stuff like that. And we were just like kind of watch and like take notes or like talk about things that we liked, things that we saw, stuff like that. Um, and it kind of felt like the Great Lakes as a whole, like a lot of people individually got really, really, really into strategizing because there was no way that we were going to out hit the Southwest. And there was no way that we were going to like, we didn't have the experience of like people who had been playing in the Northeast at this time, you know, like Quidditch started there. Like they owned the sport for like a hot seg. Um, and so it was like, people like took that really, really seriously and just kind of like, we're looking to fill in those gaps that hadn't already been filled in. I will say that I don't think those gaps exist in the same capacity anymore. (laughs) Um, And then playing out West, it was very interesting. And I think that another really big difference that I see is that honestly, 
like Quidditch does not have as much of a draw out west because there are a lot of other things that you can do with your free time. <laughs> um, I've made this joke to Kobe many, many times, but it, let me tell you, in Indiana, there was not a lot to do um, <laughs> if you were not trying to just go out to restaurants or bars. Um, <laughs> There's just not a lot that exists out there for you to do in your free time. And so it's like you found something fun that all of your friends are also now doing. And it's like, all right, this is the thing that I do now in my free time. And okay, I want to hang out with my friends. What's the one thing that we all have in common that we're going to go do? <laughs> um, out West, it's like very, very different. Like it's like, all right, do I want to practice footage this weekend or do I want to go to the beach or hike this mountain or go to Disneyland or like just any of these, like so many other things. And so it honestly feels a lot like, you know, when there were those moments where it's like in the Great Lakes, it's like, all right, if things weren't going well on our team or if I was frustrated with something personally or like a teammate or something going on, like if I chose to not go to Quidditch practice, I'm just kind of like on my own. Like all my friends are at Quidditch things. Out here, it's like, all right, things are hard. Like I don't really need to deal with that. Like I can go do something else. Um, and so I think it kind of like, became this more casual thing or like a more social thing where it's like a lot of people out here turn to it because they care about the people in the sport. Um, and it's not so much for the glory of a national title or even like a regionals title at times. Um, there's definitely the pockets of people. And I think that those people are like starting to kind of come together and realize like, oh, you know what, if we all care about like a national title, we should all play together to get a national title. That's happening more now. But I think for a while, there was a very big disparity where it's like, okay, well, I really like Kobe. So I'm going to go play on whatever team he's going to play on because I just want to like hang out with him. Regardless of what their goals are versus my goals are for a lot of kind of like conflict. Um, Oh, we froze. Oh, okay. Are you back? back? Uh, I yeah, think so. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. But yeah, that kind of ended up just like creating a lot of conflict, not necessarily that created issues, I guess, between people or teams or anything, but it just like created conflict between the teams because it was like, all right, we don't know what our goals are for like playing the sport together. Like, are we just here to hang out and have fun? Or are like, do you want to do whatever it takes to take that nationals or regional title? Like if we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> um, kind of going off of that and also like you sort of touched on this a little bit in your answer, but um, do you think there's any like regional bias against the Great Lakes or Kobe can also um, hop in about like the West as well? You could both hop in about the West. Yes. <laughs> um, again, I have not played in the Great Lakes for two to three years now, um, but I know when I was playing in college, especially, um, we were actually just kind of talking about this the other day. Um, I don't think there was necessarily bias so much as there was just kind of like, you know, it's like, obviously, you're only going to know about 
the people that you see and the people that you play against, at least like to a reputable level. Um, so when I was playing, we actually, I think there was a lot more regional coverage. Um, like the first time I, <laughs> embarrassingly, uh, clearly remember the first time I got nationally name dropped in an article. <laughs> And it was by David Hooves in an Eighth Man article. Oh. Okay, no. Yeah, you're back now. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, like, it's like, I clearly remember, like, who it was that wrote about me. And like, I remember, like, you know, it's still flattering. It's awesome. But it's like, when you see it's somebody from your own region, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, like, that makes sense. This person has seen me play. Like, they know how to talk about how I'm playing. Yeah. I don't think that that exists a lot anymore. Um, and it certainly doesn't at the same level because there's just so like little independent analysis going on because it's just like, honestly, so much work. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think Aaron touched on it on, on uh, her answer with, uh, you know, going from the Great Lakes to, to out West, like just the culture out here is very different, especially in the college scene too. Um, it was honestly such a culture shock to go to the development academy and hear, you know, from other college players, like what their programs were like. And then going back to, to you know, the UCI uh, program, um, coming from a sports background, I've played sports my entire life. Like I put everything that I can into like sports and just becoming better um, for the sake of just being better. And whereas like, what, what I've seen from most of the college programs out here is like, it's, yeah, it's more of a social thing. Like people, you know, I've heard from, from other players around the region that like Quidditch is, and like practicing is literally just as important as, you know, their schoolwork. They'll be practicing, you know, the entire school year. Whereas like, at least with like UCI, we typically don't practice during like midterm season or final season because we don't have enough players coming to practices so it's not worth it to hold a practice and so i think the just the the there's just a difference in culture um surrounding quidditch out out in the west that that makes sense um yeah it it was it is interesting talking to people from from different regions and and also just different schools about like what what the culture is there i mean i think it varies um i mean it's funny i mean like it varies from players on your team even to uh or at least with us um mm -hmm. i mean like i i think the three of us mary peter and i are all crazy enough that we're like out there in the snow during winter final season like yeah let's play quidditch <laughs> to take our minds off what's going on right now and then like mm -hmm. the most of the rest of our team is not there uh, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. i remember so clearly we had a uh we had a lightning practice one year for intensity because it was really in the middle of a thunderstorm and we were supposed to have practice and a bunch of us just decided we were like no you know what it's probably gonna be fine like when have we ever been hit by lightning so we just went and we played in this thunderstorm <laughs> well clearly you're fine but also like I don't think the question, none of us have been hit by lightning, will be fine, is the best part of the I'm sorry, you have to put a disclaimer to not play Quidditch and Lightning on this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
to anyone listening, please don't play Quidditch in a thunderstorm, especially not if you're using any metal equipment. <laughs> yeah. So building on like the question of regions and whatnot, one of the questions we've been thinking about is like the the, the way I, I, I said this once when we were planning it, the enigma of clout <laughs> in the Quidditch community. Like it's so interesting, It like where it comes from, thoughts on where it comes from, but also how permanent it is. And that like you were talking about like suddenly getting your name in a national article and something like that. And then then that can stay and last. I'm just thinking about like where it comes from and how it moves and like is there a source who controls it and just thoughts on stuff like that is something we've been thinking about and really interested in like input from folks. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go on this one first. <laughs> That's something I've been thinking about a lot too, especially um, I saw um, Basim Basim's <laughs> post in AQD recently, kind of like taking that clout for himself. Oh, and it kind of yeah. like made me think about, you know, like, yeah, who does get to control the rhetoric of like, who is a good player? Like, wh like, where does that come from? I was thinking about it a lot in terms of, like, gender especially, I guess. Like, because, you know, like, I was reading that post and I was like, I would never do this. But it was like, I, like, I know that they're, like, female and, like, those outside the binary, like, players who probably want to do that. And so it was just kind of like, you know, like, like why don't people do that more often? We saw it a lot. Um, I think West people got kind of loud for a hot sec, especially with the all campus draft where, um, you know, like it started with Cal people where they were just like, why is it? Like, who was it? Uh, Ivan Avalos, yep. um, Aiden Phipps. Yes. Yeah. The Phipps brothers, especially. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like there was like, why haven't they been drafted yet? Like this is egregious. And it's just like, you might have a point, but it's like, how do we know that? Like, like, yeah. Who, like, yeah, it's like, I think it's like, I mean, it sucks that I think a lot of it is going to come down to media representations of all of these players. But it's like, unless you want to just kind of take somebody's word for it on like, you know, if I'm playing in the West and I tell you that Kobe is a really good player like if you don't have film to access that if you have never seen kobe play in person if it's something like this year where it's your first year nationals doesn't happen mlq doesn't happen like there's no way for you to like see that in action and to even like be able to like understand the rhetoric of how to like define somebody as a good player so it's like i think i'm getting a little convoluted on this answer here honestly i'm like confusing myself but like <laughs> it's so hard because yeah it's like okay who does control who gets to say because I think that's like a lot of like what we've been talking about in the forums and stuff too is like all right where do the college voices come in like do they need to be speaking for themselves should the club be speaking up for them like do we just throw you guys into the fray and say all right like do your best <laughs> like I think uh, I think Daniel Williams is actually a, a really good example of of just Quidditch clout. Um, you know, he was definitely one of the bigger names because of the DA. Um, but throughout this last season, I've seen a lot of Southwest people shout him out and like consistently every tournament they were saying Daniel was on fire. And and 
now he is widely regarded as one of the best collegiate beaters. Yeah. And then in turn, after like kind of uh, uh, you know after that, he started like he himself started shouting out a bunch of players in the Southwest, and he started being loud about which players were being were were, were showing off at at tournaments. And so I, I feel like it's just a, a good example of, you know, he, he got that clout and then now he was returning it onto a bunch of other college players that like, yeah, a, a lot of people wouldn't know these names if, you know, people from the Southwest weren't shouting them out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like maybe, maybe it's just cause I'm following stuff on, on Facebook and like the USQ awards, but like, I know Allie Messenger's name. She's brand new to the sport and like a, brand new collegiate player at that and i feel like partly because of daniel like you're saying and then some of the other people in the southwest like people know her name um which is both really cool but then also it's, it's confusing as of like well how how do we get the you know the attention to to the people we think should should be drawing attention in the way that they're playing i was abroad in the fall and one of the things they did at tournaments was compliment threads once the tournament was finished so that like they'd post it in the tournament page and then it would just be like like 200 comments of like all these players like shouting out people they saw and i don't know if that's something i've like seen in the u.s happen like post regionals or post like big tournaments that happen and stuff and so i was just thinking about like that is a really awesome opportunity for what you were just talking about even if you have say to like elevate other people let me tell you compliment threads in the west is like peak analysis like it's like to the point where I think there was literally a post somebody made a post a few like months ago and was like hey you know if we want to have people talking about our players on a national stage like we can't keep complimenting everyone like it like went too far the other direction almost um <laughs> yeah to the point where the players that should be nationally recognized it was yeah it was so um oversaturated that like yeah i feel like the players who did deserve you know that top level recognition weren't getting it so there's a balance between definitely a balance mm -hmm. something we kind of talked about um it was something that we actually used to do in the great lakes i don't remember or i don't know if i know exactly who started it but i know that um the current regional coordinator matt dwyer was a pretty big part of it was that we had um, all t um, all region awards. So at the end of every like semester, pretty much, um, so we did like fall ones and like spring ones. And they basically like, there was a board, I don't know who was on it, <laughs> um, but they basically, they like would post and there would be like a post and it'd be like, all right, cool. Like, let's talk about what we saw this semester from this tournament, this tournament, this tournament everybody anybody could comment under it with like people that they liked um things that they saw people do that they liked like, games that were really good whatever from there and from their own um kind of like film analysis and stuff like that the board would actually meet and then they would actually pull up um the all region first team and second team it's basically like if we were going to put together like our top team like these are the people who would be on it and so like that was another thing that kind of like we always like knew it felt like who our top players were in the region because people like always talking about it. Uh, yeah, I think with 
uh, in the Northeast with MQC, we've seen a lot more of that recently, um, especially with the work that's being done with the conference. Um, I know there's a lot of people working hard on that. Um, so that's been cool to just like, I feel like the region is starting to be able to like recognize players more. Um, so, cause there's that conference, but then also, uh, there's kind of just been talk within that community and then also like the New York Quidditch community. So the broader Northeast. Um, so that's, I think that is spreading uh, depending on like where you are. Um, obviously I can only speak for where I've played, but. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing like the, um, was it Massachusetts Quidditch Conference? So the MQC stuff, like I would see the posts and stuff like that, just like circulating on my own feed when it would come up and like even through like just the awards and everything at the end of the year. And I think that, you know, based on what we heard from some of like the analysts for like the all campus cup and stuff like that, like, I think that stuff being out and circulating, like, regardless of how closely you're following it, like, even if it's something that you go back to when somebody's like, Oh, who's a good player. Like you can go back to that then and be like, cool, this region recognized these people as their good players. And it at least gives you like somewhere to start with. Yeah. Okay. So kind of, totally shifting gears talking about a different topic um but um so another question we had was um what advice would you have for smaller teams that want to grow and like start becoming more competitive okay so i think one of the biggest things that or one of the best things that a smaller program can do is to start trying to build what i called like recycled knowledge um our beater core has been strong because it's not just the captains teaching the, the beating. It's the entirety of the beater core teaching the newer players and they learn so much quicker because of that. Um, so I think that's probably the best thing a team can start doing is trying to get all of their players on board with helping teaching the, the newer players so that they, just, they can grow and learn the sport so much quicker and so that they're ready to take on those teaching positions once they're, you know, their third or fourth year. I think there's also a lot to be said too. I don't necessarily know, I guess, how deeply this might relate for college teams, especially. Um, but I know it was something that Kobe and I talked about this past year with UCI, um, which is kind of like, like a team needs to be a team all the way through. And I think a lot of, or not a lot of, but like some teams that come into issues, um, like, be, like in their team structure, face those issues because they don't really have that cohesive goal that we kind of talked about earlier. You know, like, it's like, okay, are we all here to have like a fun time and just like hang out with our friends and like socialize after classes? Or like, are we like trying to win like a regional title? are we trying to go for a national gold, like, or a final four run or a whatever, you know, I think there's like something to be said for setting the expectations early on so that you know, like what you're signing up for pretty much. Because I think like Ball State had like a lot of people kind of like fade in and out of the team, but for the whole, like a lot of the core team stayed because we were the people who, knew what we signed on for like ball state was always a very serious team like they always 
you went to even like your first meeting and it was like, okay, we're going to have fun. Also, we're trying to like win regionals. So show up to practice. Thanks. <laughs> like, like it was very much like you knew that you were going to work hard and that you were just going to also have fun because you liked the people who were there. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think both of your points are, are you said both with both kinds of multiple points, but are, are super valuable. I know, um, when, we were all at Middlebury. We we tried to or like uh, tried to kind of create situations for players to to reach out and create like share their opinions early on in the season through through polls and individual conversations with captains and stuff, so that we could set those expectations and also um, try and provide uh, opportunities for players to learn from each other. Um, so I I think what you're what you're saying is is yeah, are great points um, to try and help those teams grow. Um, quickly to follow up with Aaron, what you were saying about, um, early on and then just now about like how you've learned different styles of beating and whatnot. Um, I don't remember the answer to this, even though I tried to do some, we tried to do some research. Um, have you played in any of the fantasy tournaments that happened in different parts of the country that were for female and gender non-conforming players? And did, if you did or didn't, like, do you think getting to play in an environment without um, sort of maybe more like a dominating male presence, which sometimes definitely exists. Um, has that allowed you to explore different beater s- strategies or styles at all? Or do you think it would for players um, who, who get that opportunity? Yeah. So to answer the first part of the question, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on this. So if I'm not, you'll have to bleep me, but there is a group <laughs> called the West region glorious bitches. Um, which was started <laughs> because that was our event for like non-male. And I don't mean female and gender non-conforming. I mean, men aren't allowed to play with us. Yeah. <laughs> um, tournaments. <laughs> and um, it's actually a uh, quick plug. It's open for everybody now. Like, please come in. We talk about things um, all the time. There's a lot of discussions that go on there that might interest you if you are female or gender non-conforming. <laughs> um, but that was the first and actually only so far event that I've gone to like that. Um, but even just going to the one, we we're actually planning a second one for this fall, I think. But yeah. yeah. But going to the one event... I remember that it was like, like, honestly, the thing I remember most from playing at that event was hearing other people's feedback. Um, I think at like, kind of like the area of playing footage that I'm at now, um, I had already kind of crested over that hill of like, I'm going to do whatever I want. And like, if it doesn't work out, like you can just deal with it. Like, gotcha. <laughs> kind of a thing. but, um, I know a lot of players, especially the college players out here, like it was just like a great experience. Like I remember like seeing the posts in the page, even just like a day or two afterwards, like it was just like a really like formative and like inspiring um event for them because yeah that was the first time that like maybe they got to play point and they've always kind of like suspected that maybe they could be good at point but like nobody's gonna put them in because it's like a risk or whatever it is um you know maybe you've never gotten to actually even try seeker for your team or try beating for your team because you know your team structure didn't like couldn't move you off of female chaser it was just like a really, really great experience to have like 
a space where you could not only try those different things and try them presumably kind of in an atmosphere where other people have the experience to kind of like give you tips and like nudge you in the right directions. Like, okay, you want to try this new thing? Awesome. Like, here's how I do it. Here's how she does it. Like, fit, like what's going to work for you? Um, and so I think like they're really, really great spaces, um, especially because there is like a disparity in kind of the power structure, even like on just like a local level for like teams, you know, it's like, it's still like, it's not super common for there to be a female or gender non-conforming or somebody who recognizes like outside the binary. Like it's not super common for those people to be a head coach on a team. So they're not typically the people making the decisions for a team. Um, and with that, you know, kind of comes a stipulation of like, you can't really understand the experiences that are outside of your own. Um, so, you know, there have like been instances where even just like out West, you know, like, um, there was like a college player who felt like she wasn't doing as well as she could be because her hands were just so small. Like she wasn't catching harder passes from guys. And so it's like, all right, we need to like adjust how you play so that you can make those catches because you're not a bad player. It's like, you just have something that you have to like kind of learn to adjust for. And honestly, if your team really wants to win, they should probably also adjust to that thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they're great. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> and I definitely get the the small hands comment. <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, oh my god, I was just listening to Grace and Lulu's um, guest appearance on the Eighth Man. I literally listened to it earlier today, and Lulu was talking about learning to hold a bludger with smaller hands, and I was like, "That is so real." <laughs> like, I, I still mean, it's <laughs> not as small as hers, but like, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, cool. So we just have one question left, kind of a fun closing question for both of y'all. So um, who is someone that each of you um, look up to in the Quidditch community or maybe someone's? Do you know your answer? Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, you, you can go, go first. Um, my first one is definitely really easy. I'm going to say Amanda Dallas. Um, she's like done so much in like so many aspects and like, I don't even know if I really like fully realized it for a really long time, but just like knowing that there was a woman in the sport doing the things that she was doing made it so much more accessible to even like think about that being a possibility for me. Um, I also... I really like, um, this one's kind of biased, I guess, but Nathan Digman from the Great Lakes, he was, he's the head coach for um, Boom Train and he was head coach for Intensity for at least a few seasons. Um, and like, I just think he's got like a really good mind for the sport. And I think he does a really great job of listening to his team and like letting everybody have a voice. Um, I think he was on somebody's podcast um, where he was talking about kind of just like the challenges with coaching club because everybody just has so much experience. And like a lot of times they have experience coaching yeah. and something that like, like I think he does a really good job of is like listening to all of that experience and like understanding it and kind of like letting it sit and then like making his decisions from there. Like I always felt like very respected as somebody playing under him. 
Um, I'm also, I got one more. <laughs> uh, Emily Provenzano, the, the head, the woman who is helping coach the chasers for UCI. I have never, honestly, I think I've maybe seen her play once, but just seeing her coach and listening to how she was able to like impart her knowledge and experience and the things that she was saying, like, I honestly think that she just has one of the best minds for strategy that like I've seen in the sport and I've seen and talked to a fair amount of people, not to brag, but. <laughs> Subtle flex. I'm pretty old, so it's. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to say Emily Provenzano as well. Um, she was an alumni of UCI. Um, and so her and her husband, uh, Joe Robles, uh, reached out to us kind of towards the beginning of the, of the season um, and of this last season. And so they came and coached with us um, for part of the season. And uh, she is nothing against Joe, but she is the she is the brain. She <laughs> absolutely uh, knows how to coach. Um, and so she she on it. We both me and my co-captain were beaters. Um, and so we were having a little bit of trouble um, kind of getting our chasing line um, on track. Um, and she stepped in um, along with Joe and they just absolutely helped us uh, watching her coach, watching her explain um, new strategies to, to these younger players was absolutely amazing. She is a very knowledgeable in Quidditch. And also Ian. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell him to say me That's, we're not fishing for compliments <laughs> just trying to get to know the quid community better <laughs> Ian's like who should I interview next he's telling me he like <laughs> oh my goodness A key takeaway for me from the conversation with Aaron and Kobe was how people gain clout or get recognized in the Quidditch community, from comment threads to the all-timers and college campus drafts. The enigma of clout and Quidditch is always worth exploring. Who controls it? How are you able to get it? And how do you lose it? I really liked what Aaron said about the differences she has noticed um, between the regions she has played in. Hearing her stories about the West and how they are mainly focused on community whereas the Great Lakes is more competitive, was super interesting. Learning about this has made me think about the Northeast and how I think we try to strike a balance between the two. Another moment that stood out to me was when Kobe talked about coaching and creating communities of knowledge to help build a team. At UC Irvine, Kobe was able to recognize what skills and knowledge he had, for example, his beater knowledge, and then put other people in coaching or leadership positions with separate knowledge than himself, like someone with more knowledge of chasing. Hopefully, as the sport continues to grow, more teams can take this strategy and grow their own leadership positions to spread broader knowledge of the sport. Thanks, everyone who tuned in to our third episode of Season 2. And thanks, Aaron and Kobe, for joining us. As always, special thanks to our editors, Matt and Abe, who helped put together this podcast. And also thanks to Sam and Paul for designing all of our updated logos and images. 
Thanks again to you all for listening. And as always, we'll catch you all again next time on Questioning Quidditch.